Welcome to Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Get expert advice on a variety of topics and hear what Ottawa business people have to offer. Ask questions, get answers. This is Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Maintaining the wishes of a loved one who has passed, coupled with the required legal demands and the paperwork, may have the potential for much stress and concern. With proper planning and the right advice, the way through the process is manageable. This hour, we're continuing our monthly series on estates law, sound information to know in a time of need. Good afternoon once again, Dave Watts with you, as we welcome back Neil Milton from Milton's Estates Lots, based here in Ottawa. Staying informed is key, and as we've said before, specific details are unique to all of us, but a general overview of what's needed and what to do is always timely. This hour, we'll look into the estate accounts and we'll talk about the key roles it plays in overall estate planning. Good afternoon again, Neil. Good afternoon, Dave. Great to talk to you. Great to chat with you again too, Neil. So for listeners new to Milton's Estates Law shows that we're doing these days, let's start with a quick overview of your services. Well, we provide sort of soup to nuts, but only about uh, wills and estates planning. So, uh, and wills and estates rather. So from the plan all the way through to the conclusion and wind up and distribution of the estate. And a significant portion of our work is assisting both estate trustees to probate and administer the estate. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today, but also uh, and assisting beneficiaries who are not so happy with the performance of the estate trustee, which is also very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. Well, now the, the crucial importance certainly of uh, properly managing estate accounts uh, is key. Let's talk about that and kind of set the stage for that, Neil. Yeah, so let's start by by accounts, the notion of estate accounts. And what what it really refers to is is like accounting. It's, it's the financial records. So this uh, this is what I collected and this is this is what the how the estate the money flowed. And it is absolutely crucial in for the estate trustee to maintain records, to be able to produce accounts, and to be able to provide those accounts to the beneficiaries. So each step of that, you've kind of you got to keep records. You've got to be able to produce, turn them into an, a set of accounts, which is not just sort of a dump of here's every bank statement and every check I've ever uh, received. Um, those receipts or in the, the lingo of the trade, they're called vouchers. You know, they can be thousands of pages of, of things in a complex estate, but the accounts are the financial records, just like financial statements. Oh, I see. And, and it's really crucial that an estate trustee keep all the records, the receipts, and then be able to produce something in the way of accounts and give them to the beneficiaries. And if need be, not always, but be able to present them to the court. What happens, Neil, if uh, an estate trustee gets into this and then realizes that he or she is getting buried? Yeah, well, uh, it's one of the reasons why I say be careful before you accept a nomination, really, because that's all it is. When you're written into a will, for instance, as the executor, the the testator, the deceased, has suggested you as and nominated you. But you're not obligated to act, and you really should be careful because if you get buried, if you renounce, 
and say, not for me. I'm not able or willing or this isn't suitable for me. I'm not the right person. And you never meddle with the estate. That's it. That's all. All you have to sign is a one-page renunciation. If you start down the process of meddling with the estate and administering it and then decide, yikes, uh, I'd rather not do this, you have to resign. And in order to be released by the court, you actually technically need to pass your accounts. So you can't escape the potential mystery of passing your accounts just by bailing out halfway through. You need to, um, you'll have to pass accounts for the period that you were involved. Mm. So uh, the key really um, at the outset uh, is uh, if a person is designated or has been designated as a as a trustee, if they really feel they can't handle it, including managing the estate accounts, then renounce right away. Absolutely. And and it's not it's not offensive. You know, it's not an offense to the um to the testator that you're not honoring their wishes, particularly since times uh, frequently change. You know, you may have been in some written in someone's will 20 years ago. That's very different from whether you're ready, willing, and able to take on the role now. You may, it's not offensive to the beneficiaries for you to say, maybe I'm not the right person, especially if you help instead hand the ball to someone who is the right person. And that's why I particularly always encourage people to think seriously about using a professional trustee, whether it's a trust company or maybe a lawyer who, or an accountant who specializes in the area. Uh, it's something to, um, <laughs> you, you really should start from the premise of, is this right for me and am i the right person and if the answer is unequivocally no to both of those yeah you should renounce uh, i should mention that like an issue that came up this morning with a, a client if you don't have email and can't use a computer running an estate these days is going to be very very difficult and it's just it's just something basic like that if you don't have an email account you don't know how to use a computer and you can't do some online banking wow, it's going to be hard to administer an estate. And I would think seriously about not taking on the job. Neil, let's talk about the duty to account. Now, there are a number of responsibilities, uh, including this, including responsibility itself. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, so let's let's start with the word, because actually it, it gives you a lot of insight. We, I've just talked about accounts as a noun, as if they were a set of financial statements. And it's true. But, you know, the verb to account or accountability is a real gives you a really useful insight into what we're doing here. A a trustee is accountable and is and really is accountable to two groups of people. They're accountable to the beneficiaries and they're accountable to the court. So. And, and, and how do you do that? You account for your actions. So that's effectively where the terminology comes from. I'm the trustee. I'm accounting to the beneficiaries and I'm accounting to the court for what I've done. So, uh, and, and then what I've done should be <laughs> I've administered the entire estate. And so here's what I've done from, from the time I've from the death of the testator uh, or the death of, of the deceased really to, to current day. I'm, and you know, you're held to a high standard. It's not, uh, you're not allowed to say, well, I don't keep very good records of my own stuff. Uh, why would I keep good records of an estate? You're uh, managing someone else's money. That's the nature of a trustee. And so you have this duty of accountability to say, here's what I did with someone else's money. 
Going to take a quick break on News Talk 580 CFRA's experts on call and then get right back into this conversation, the duty to account as part of our conversation on estate accounts this hour. Experts on call, our guest Neil Milton on News Talk 580 CFRA. We'll be right back. We'll return with more experts on call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Now back to Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Neil Milton is our guest from Milton's Estates Law. Just before the break, we were talking about the duty to account as it relates to estate accounts. And Neil, I think one of the big, we were talking about this during the break. One of the big things that uh, is a part of it is the communication aspect, like communication to beneficiaries, for example. That's right, Dave. And a lot of uh, people don't understand the importance of communicating uh, to beneficiaries accurately and completely, but that doesn't mean in some kind of micromanaging detail uh, what you have the estate trustee has done with the estate. So, you know, I sold the house. Uh, here are the net proceeds of the house. I sold the contents of the house, or this is what I paid for the re- removal or junk removal or whatever from the house. Um, and so just as this may or may not resonate with folks, but accounting statements are the language of business, the way you communicate in business, the success of a business. And accounts in the, for estates are at least the formal way that you communicate back and forth uh, what you've done and equally are the way that most – when beneficiaries have what I call financial concerns about how the estate is managed, they should communicate them by objecting to certain aspects of the account. So, but it particularly, not all, not by any means, every estate is a, is a dispute. But even even if you're really, really close to your siblings and you're the trustee, you should be accounting with some regularity to them so that they just have an idea what's going on. And a proper set of accounts is the way to do it. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the format of accounts. Uh, that covers, uh, I guess, a fairly broad range. I, formal and informal, I suspect, are the ways to go. Let's talk about formal. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the actual formal uh, accounts that are required for the court are a really strange, stylized beast. And they're not, they're not familiar to any other person except uh, lawyers who deal and judges who deal in the uh, estate accounts world. So don't expect your average accountant to be able to assist you to prepare them because they are not financial statements in the way you're used to. And they're also, they're useful for certain things, but they're not really very good at giving you a quick snapshot of the estate. So especially if, if things are going well or and there's unlikely to be any great dispute, uh, it's one of the reasons why I so strongly encourage people to maintain an informal set of accounts, accurate. Informal doesn't mean inaccurate, just means not the full blown court thing where literally every dime of interest is recorded as a separate line. Uh, and an informal set of accounts would just be a spreadsheet. For instance, you keep an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Doc uh, that you can you can show people, here's, here's the, the money that came in, here's the expenses, here's the money that's going out. So I should say, uh, just because I've just ranted about how 
how weird they are, that it's really important if you are forced to produce formal estate accounts to not get overwhelmed with how weird it is, but not think you have to do it, but to hire someone who specializes in it. So for instance, our firm doesn't do them, any of them for our own clients. We have contractors who we use who are experts in doing it, and it's vastly cheaper, faster, better than uh, either doing it yourself or getting uh, someone who uh, your your local lawyer who you've used all the time, but who doesn't have the in-house expertise in generating accounts. So I guess, but sorry, go ahead, Neil. No, just a heads up there that they, these people exist and you don't have to just, uh, a lot of people are often very concerned about the cost and complexity of accounting. It doesn't need to be nearly as bad as people often think. For instance, if you have an organized set of receipts, you have things in file folders, whether that's electronic or paper. Maybe it's in paper, you have a banker's box. Um, you ship the banker's box to a person who's an expert in preparing accounts and boom, for a few thousand dollars, there's complete accounts. So it doesn't take six months and cost $50,000. Kind of so the informal component really is just gathering the information together and putting it in some kind of an organized fashion that can be dealt with from a more formal standpoint. That's that's exactly right. And, and I say, especially, you know, if you get along with your siblings or you're, you're all trustees. I mean, even if three of you are co-trustees, you probably should have a running spreadsheet that the three of you can access and, and put information on so that it's clear to everybody what we've, what we've paid. So what we, what we've collected and what we've paid. Um, and, and that's it. It's, so there's no magic or mystery to it, but it's something that keeps track of uh, the ins and outs of these states and say, even if all there are two, three is, uh, trustees and you love each other and agree on everything, at the end of the day, you're going to have to write some checks and it's useful to have uh, some way of keeping track of them. Now, the content of accounts, let's kind of dig into that. Uh, I guess uh, all assets of death, uh, that's the one element of it, I suspect. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the, the, the trouble with with these discussions is always that the range, so the range in, in complexity, the range of difficulty, uh, but for the average person, the average estate is not nearly as complicated as you might first think in terms of gathering the assets. There may or may not be uh, one or two pieces of real property. So some people are renters or, for instance, if you've sold the house and moved into long-term care, then there's no real property. Then, uh, So there's real property. There might be some savings and investments and um, and hopefully and maybe some registered accounts or not. But Ideally, it's fairly straightforward where those were and what the values were on date of death. And that's, that's it. I mean, for instance, if someone banks at one bank, you can normally go into that bank and they will produce for you a statement of all of the assets of, that they have registered to that person as at the date of death. And they just print it out. And there you go. That's the date of death values for, for all the assets. Obviously, things can get crazy complicated people have assets in different jurisdictions you know they've got a timeshare in arizona or a piece of land in jamaica and you know and, and you don't know where they banked and all these things but those aren't fortunately aren't all that common and but it is absolutely incumbent on the estate trustee to collect and value all assets at date of death 
I should stress people spend a crazy amount of time often worrying about what we call, lawyers call personal property. That means the stuff inside the house that you can carry away normally. And a word of caution is almost all of it isn't worth anything near what you think it's worth. And it's you don't need to itemize it by the cup, you know, because it's it, it's just not cost effective. The truth of the matter is that mum's china is probably not worth anything. But even there, you don't have to get it appraised. Sell it. That's the way to prove the value. Mm-hmm. And if you get someone to pay you for it, that's the value. So, and, and this is going to lead into one of the, the 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 common complexities. If I sell everything inside the house, for instance, say I have an, an estate auction, and I hire an auction company, and they, uh, whether online or in person, they sell everything in the house. I get one check at the end of it that's net of their costs. That was the value. That's all I need. On the other hand, things can get weird if some of if there are three siblings and two out of three want to take some of the stuff and the third one is saying well the what you took was worth a lot of money the silverware or whatever because then you do need to put a monetary value on things that you haven't sold to a third party so that you can fairly divide up the rest of the estate so it's uh, it's often, for instance, one of the reasons why, though I encourage people, if they're cooperating, to think about why don't you each just take some things, look at each other and say, oh, yeah, you've taken that painting. I'll take this painting or you've taken the silverware. I'll take the china. Good. We're all good here. Everyone's equal. Yes. Shake hands on that. And don't worry about what the, the dollar value that you put on that stuff was. Hmm. Now, how does executor compensation fit into this? <laughs> well, executor compensation is probably the the greatest single cause of of dispute and controversy. So, and it, for the reasons that we've just been discussing, partly, look, running an estate is work, and it's and it's hard work for some people some of the time, and it's uh, and it's complicated. So an estate trustee is entitled to reasonable compensation, uh, but not unreasonable compensation. And if all of the assets are sold to third parties, then at least it's very easy to figure out what the value of the estate was. And uh, and then there are these rough rules of thumb, which are rough around, for instance, the, exec- the estate trustee is entitled to uh, – two and a half percent of what they collect and two and a half percent of what they distribute or um, generally that's sort of five percent but things get can get complicated and they can get acrimonious fast in a couple of different ways one is uh, what i was just talking about if you don't actually sell things um are you entitled to charge for them uh and you know the preferable route is if things don't have monetary value then don't try to charge a an executor comp on them. Uh, the second is sometimes the five percent is just grossly out of whack. It's either too high or too low. That's particularly true these days with some pieces of real estate that have gone up astronomically. And if if the house is very easy to sell and has no um, mortgages on it, that you know it's not necessarily worth. $100,000 of compensation just for selling a $2 million house. We're going to take a quick break on News Talk 580 CFRA. Neil, we'll get back to our conversation on estate accounts in just a moment. Quick break. We'll be right back on News Talk 580 CFRA. 
We'll return with more experts on call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Now back to Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Welcome back to Experts on Call on News Talk 580 CFRA. If you're just uh, joining us this hour, great conversation, always interesting. Neil Milton is our guest from Milton's Estates Law, and you'll find them here in Ottawa on Fitzgerald Road, but the best place really is online, ontario-probate.com. C-A. We're talking about estate accounts this hour and income and interest, Neil, certainly uh, something to talk about, often nominal, but uh, we got to make it simple. Yeah, well, we've been through a period of uh, very low interest rates, and so you didn't collect much interest, but um, it, it's often... Uh, the case that people make interest much more complicated than they need to. And it's a, it's a really good example of how estates can be made way more complicated than they need to be about, about amounts that don't really matter. So let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, on a formal set of accounts, you know, you would have to record every time you get a monthly increment interest payment from the bank. So you may get $6.95. Each one of those would be recorded in your formal account. So if you're truly passing accounts and you had 12 months of interest, you might see 12 separate little one-liners. In an informal set of accounts, I might just have one cell that says interest that we collected, and there's one number. So that gives you just right there a comparison point of how it, it gets really complicated if you're if you're preparing formal or really owners sometimes if you're preparing a com, a formal account. But equally, because we've been in this period of really low interest rates, what a lot, it shows you a good example of how you can make life so much simpler for the estate trustee. This, as soon as the estate trustee can, which is not later, hopefully, than right after they get the certificate of appointment, what you want to do is stop earning interest. It's not worth it. You want to get the money into a non-interest bearing account. So it sounds a little counterintuitive. You think, oh, well, you're not going to earn any money, but it, you you cut off all this complexity. And you also then mean you're not earning income because interest is taxable income in Canada. And if you earn income, interest, then you have to report it to CRA. Then you have to wait until you can file tax return. And so every year that you're going, you earn interest in delays the final getting of a clearance certificate by an extra year. So the best practice often is the, you know, if someone has a, some, some money in a savings account or in GICs, is as quickly as possible, terminate the GICs, get the money into a non-interest bearing account. And then ideally, you'll be in a position to distribute some or all of it to the beneficiaries anyway. But, you know, on $50,000, I can tell you that you just don't want to make that interest some complexity that drives everyone crazy because the, the actual amount is worth not very much. Very true. Let's talk about uh, releases. Uh, Neil, what is a release? So a release is a binding contract uh, not to sue someone. So they're very, very common in the state practice, but and and they're sometimes done really well and sometimes <clears throat> not so well. So if I'm the estate trustee and I'm in a position to make what we call especially an interim distribution to the beneficiaries, I say, hey, I've paid, sold the house, I paid 
uh, the most of the income taxes. I know there might be a few things coming up, but why don't we distribute uh, $100,000 to each beneficiary? So I'm going to say to you, here are my accounts. And if the, you approve these, please sign this release. So a contract that says you've approved the accounts and you agree not to sue me for anything that's happened to date. And I will give you a check for $100,000. And as well, they're very common at the end of the process, and it's the way people avoid going a court-ordered passing of accounts. So I should, if you come to the end and say, Dave, I'm ready to finalize distribution here, you're going to get your last check. Would you please sign this release confirming that you've received the estates, that you've received the check, and that you're happy with everything, and you're not going to sue me later? The, the crucial, there are a couple of crucial parts of that. You know, you don't sign it unless you're happy. And it's, a lot sure. of people do have signer's remorse. You know, they sign them and then later say, I should have forced my brother to, to pass his account. And, and there are, they're, they're mostly for the executor, for the estate trustee is saying, great, I've got, I've got off the hook here. I've finished. All the uh, beneficiaries were, happy or at least if not un, not unhappy but there's always the option of going to court and it's a really useful option it's not picking fights to say you know what i really think you should pass your accounts and one of the things i skipped over at the very beginning of this is there's some some states for which trustees always must pass their accounts there's just no issue and it gives you an idea and understanding of of this notion of accountability if one of the beneficiaries, for instance, is a minor, so someone under 18, they can't sign a contract. So you can never get a binding release from them. And generally, the expectation is you must pass your accounts. So you must go to court and get a court order approving your accounts if one of the beneficiaries of the estate is under 18. So it's a perfect example of that's not saying you're a bad person or you did a bad job. It's saying no. But you need to go and get an account for yourself to a judge. And if you do so, the judge will sign off and say you've done a great job and you're entitled to this much comp and the estate's all done. Now, what about a court order to force the trustee to pass accounts? How does that apply? Yeah, so there's, there's this two-step process uh, on occasion. So especially if a trustee is not doing anything or is being extremely slow. So the beneficiaries can go to court to get a court order that says you, Mr. Estate Trustee, you know, Neil, you've been too slow, you must pass your accounts. And if if the beneficiaries get one of those orders, which are not terribly difficult to get, you can't get it in the first year, for instance, but if we've been three years down, you're quite likely to get it. And you just say, hey, I'm entitled to to know what's going on. And it's like when we talked earlier about communication, it's exactly that. I'm entitled to know what's going on, and I'm entitled to know when I'm going to get my money. And the, if the court makes that order, then it's the trustee has to start get their materials together, file them with the court, and has to have their accounts approved. And that's how you get this process underway for, uh, for a court-ordered uh, passing of accounts when – um, but it, and it has this double element to it, of course. It forces the estate trustee to be accountable or show what they've done. And normally, it also forces the estate trustee to actually distribute the estate because, unfortunately, there are a significant number of cases where uh, estate trustees just don't get the job done in a timely fashion. Mm. Now, what about challenging 
accounts. That's got to be an interesting aspect. <laughs> yeah. So it's it and it, it is an interesting aspect because it now it can cover every aspect of the of the account, but it's also really really important for people to understand the difference between the forest and the trees. You know, you need to focus on the big issues and not the small issues. And uh, for better or for worse, it reveals all kinds of different levels of when people do and don't complain and people's sense of entitlement on both sides of the of the equation. Uh, so it's a but it's again, there's nothing wrong with doing it. It's not an offense or, or offensive to say I'm going to challenge some of the things on your accounts. And sometimes that just means you need to provide you, the trustee, must provide me, the beneficiary, with more information. And equally, as, as so from a trustee perspective, I come back to, hey, some of the times it is the only way you will ever get the estate settled is not by convincing a, a beneficiary. You know, there are some people who would not agree uh, that that today is, you know, today's Tuesday kind of thing. There are beneficiaries who will always disagree with the estate trustee. So the only way for a trustee to move this forward to a final conclusion is to go through a contested passing of accounts. They say, here are my accounts. What do you object to? And ultimately have a judge decide whether those objections are, are valid or not. So uh, I should, you know, uh, one issue, it's funny how often it comes up, this issue of personal property and the house and the cleaning out the house. And amazing how many people uh, have misconceptions about the role of the trustee. The role of the trustee is to get the house emptied and sold. It is not necessarily to do it themselves. And so... I've had cases of people complaining about the rental of dumpsters and how long and equally how long it took and blah blah. And I keep thinking, you know, there are junk services. You could just order them, and that's the cost of removing the junk. Doesn't take very long. It doesn't and and so it really illustrates nicely the role. The role is to make the decisions, not to carry you know, the, the lazy boy out of the basement. Very, very interesting. <laughs> now, a trustee is also entitled to a to reasonable compensation and not entitled to unreasonable compensation. How does that work? Yeah, so we, we're talking and and uh, about this notion of a passing of accounts and the judge saying, look, on balance, what are you entitled to fairly and reasonably? And while there's these rough rule of thumbs around percentages, it's also useful to have some notion of the time and effort. Uh, but as I just mentioned, sometimes people put time and effort into things that are not terribly valuable. I mean, if it's a, if you're doing a $25 an hour job, at least you shouldn't expect to get compensated more than $25 an hour for doing that job. So, be forewarned that it's not necessarily going to be some incredibly lucrative activity if you, depending on how you administered uh, the estate. But fair and reasonable compensation, absolutely for doing a fair and reasonable, for doing a good job. Time to take a quick break on News Talk 580 CFRA's Experts on Call in conversation with Neil Milton of Milton's Estates Law, their website, ontario-probate.ca. More to come back in a moment. We'll return with more experts on call on News Talk 580 CFRA. Now back to experts on call on News Talk 580 CFRA. 
Welcome back to our conversation with Neil Milton from Milton's Estates Law. This hour, we're talking about estate accounts. So to start off with Neil, let's talk about costs and who pays. Big item. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. And, and there's a lot of myths and misconceptions around, around both of these, the cost of passing accounts and, and who pays it. And I not infrequently see estate trustees trying to threaten beneficiaries that, you know, if you make challenge me, it'll cost thousands of dollars and it'll come out of your hide kind of thing. So come back to the starting point, which is this duty of accountability. It is the duty of an estate trustee to account and not accounting is essentially an exception legally it it more often than not people don't actually pass their accounts formally in court but the the court the sort of legal duty is you've got to do it and uh, if you hire the right people who are experienced and know what they're doing it and you've kept good record it's not a terribly onerous activity it, it's not free and it, it'll cost maybe for the average estate thousands of dollars and not hundreds but it's not tens of thousands of dollars unless people turn it into a, a great brouhaha. So it's and it's money that in the normal course, the starting premise is it comes out of the estate. So um, if you account properly and have run a decent sized estate and but done it properly, it's an expense of the estate. And it, that's just the way it is. And it's borne by ultimately by all the beneficiaries equally. And, you know, there are lots and lots of folks who in Ottawa, the, the house alone is going to be worth over half a million dollars. And so we're talking about quite large amounts of money often. The idea of spending a few thousand dollars to ensure that everybody's satisfied and happy and, well, maybe not a happy, but everybody's satisfied with the outcome and they've received full information is money very well spent. And uh, yeah, I can't emphasize enough the importance of, of Two things, getting people involved who know what they're doing and do it a lot because it's much more cost efficient and then not quibbling about little things and focusing on the big issues. Well, it's all part of, uh, you know, emphasizing the importance of a disciplined, consistent effort, not to scare folks, but it's really important to be fairly disciplined in what you're doing. That's right. Discipline and organized. And, and it's very similar to doing your own personal taxes, especially if you're an entrepreneur running a business. You know, you know, all of us have probably seen somebody showed up to give you a quote on something on your house and the front, the windshield, uh, the dashboard of their truck is covered in receipts and quotes and bills. That's a terrible way to run a business and it's a terrible way to run an estate. See, but you know, there are lots of tools available, and especially if you get it all electronically, so that you can provide decent accounting of everything that's gone on in the estate. So discipline, and it's very difficult to do it all at the end in a batch. So it's much, much better if just from the get-go you kept proper records, like you kept every uh, all the bank statements in one in one place. But you know, these days, especially electronically, you can download them from the bank and save them to a Google Drive or whatever you're going to use. And you never need to print it. And there's not this massive difficulty or expense, but you have this organized system for keeping records. You know, something else, Neil, that's so important. And as a general reminder, we've talked about this so many times in the past. If you're not the right person to act as a trustee, then renounce. Simple as that. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm probably unusual in recommending that to people. But you know, it's it's a it's a task or a job that really doesn't isn't suitable for a lot of people. And there there are lots of families who think it has to be the oldest son or some or the caregiving daughter or some crazy thing, and that it was about honor and respect. And it's not. And and whether and even if you don't uh, renounce. There's no shame in saying this is not really up my alley. Uh, I'm going to hire people to help me through the whole process. But just make sure you hire good people because that was your job. If you say I'm going to hire someone but then hire uh, a lawyer who doesn't return your phone calls, for instance, and never talks to you, well, you've hired someone who's no good at what they do. So then you don't get off the hook by uh, delegated to someone who didn't know what they were doing. So. Either don't take on the job in the first place or get the advice you need when you're and to do the job properly because you as the estate trustee, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to everybody else to administer the estate fully, fairly and in a timely fashion. And these sort of people who drag it out because it's just not their cup of tea, it's really, really unfortunate they just didn't get involved in the first place. One of the things, uh, uh, Neil, that I want to mention too, your website is an amazing resource and a great source of information. You've got just about everything there. And uh, let's talk about that. Well, I don't know how amazing it is. And people keep every so often people find typos for me, which is helpful <laughs> because there there are there are thousands of pages and words and, and I didn't have a professional editor so riding herd over me. So if if you find something that, that there's a spelling mistake or there's a missing knot or something important like that, send me an email. But on an issue like this, for instance, it really helps to inform yourself. I think people who people who know more, both as beneficiaries and as trustees, so I want to stress that as well, it's really helpful for beneficiaries to understand their rights and their role in the process and the right the role and obligations of the trustees so they're not complaining about the wrong things and then when they do have legitimate complaints they stick up their hand and say i need some i need some help and because a, a lot of the time both parties are just uh, off in left field and not uh, <laughs> thinking something they've heard somewhere uh, is is what is what needs to happen. And that's why I gave you the example of carrying the lazy boy out of the basement is that there are a lot of trustees and a lot of beneficiaries who somehow think it's the trustee's job and responsibility to clean out the house, for instance. And then they say, mom was a hoarder and it took me six months to clean out the house. And I say, what? Not one single part of that was correct. You know, you didn't have the obligation to do it personally, and it shouldn't have taken you six months. And, you know, it's an unfortunate habit of mums, but you should have got it done as quickly and cost effectively as possible. Absolutely. And something else, too, in terms of benefiting the trustee, it's a great resource if, you know, they've retained uh, legal advice, uh, uh, perhaps, obviously, through Milton's Estates Law, and uh, they need to come back and maybe get a clarification on a point or something, they can search it on your website. Yeah, absolutely. You, there's a search tool, and, and look, they don't have to engage us. And I get I get quite a few emails actually from lawyers as well, and people saying I've got a problem or what about this? So uh, and 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 referrals. It's written. It's 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 written for everybody. It's free, and I have no problem with people saying, "Hey, I haven't hired you. I've hired someone else." 
but I'm just looking at this stuff to see if it uh, it helps us along. And if it helps you along, great. If there's something we can do to, to assist, great. But and if all it was is we've already done what we can do to help. We've just written it in plain English in a way that folks can understand. Something, Dave, a lot of people do is they show it to their uh, the other people involved with the estate. So one beneficiary will show it to the trustee and the other beneficiaries. And so they're all on the same page. And they say, oh, this is what we've been told we have to do. Neil Milton, we are right out of time. I want to thank you so much for, once again, a great conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Dave. You're very welcome. And Neil Milton, of course, with Milton's Estates Law. Dave Watts here. Have a great day. News is next on News Talk 580 CFRA.